Two lessons. One, don't forget your mic. Two, when you do, just do it. Just put it on. Don't try to recover and look good and all that. Just be awkward. It's part of life. We're human. Romans chapter 7. Take your Bible and turn there. And um, we are coming to the end of this chapter, but not the end of Paul's thinking on this matter. And I think sometimes the, uh, the fact that we you know, transition from one chapter in our Bible to the next chapter, we kind of lose sight of the fact that this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church. So from the first verse to the last verse, Paul is carrying out a theme. He's carrying out a thought. He's carrying out m multiple thoughts, really. Uh, but an overarching kind of thought is reigning over the book of Romans. And we touched on it last week. It's in Romans chapter one, when he says that his desire is that all the nations come to the obedience of faith. All people that are under Christ's lordship come to the moment of obedience in faith, or we called it faith-fueled obedience. Different from mere obligation, duty. Different from compliance, you know? We often think of obedience as I'm complying to what the boss told me to do. I'm complying to what my spouse wants. I'm complying to what the church has asked. God doesn't seek our compliance. God wants our hearts to overflow with faith toward him in obedience. To truly believe that his way is better than always. You understand what I'm saying? That is a revolutionary reality when it really sinks into your heart and invades your life at the practical level. No longer, if that takes over your mind, Paul knows this, we need to know this, the Holy Spirit spends the whole New Testament inspiring writers, expiring the Word of God into the heart of writers, that they get this fact. God is not looking for sacrifices dutiful obedience, white knuckling it, really believing that the better things are out there, but we're stuck with these things that God requires of us. God's not looking for that. Matter of fact, in Isaiah, he's very blunt about it. He says, I don't need, I have no need of your sacrifices. I have no need of you coming to my temple with mere obedience, just barely scraping by the barrel. I don't need that. I'm seeking those who have a contrite heart, an upright spirit within them, a longing delight in me and in me alone. Fueled obedience, faith-fueled obedience is God's desire for your life and my life. And Paul writes the book of Romans that we might understand that. And he starts out in this great letter with the bad news and moves to the good news of justification. And then in chapter 5, he does something that we have to keep in, in remembrance as we study through 7 and 8 and the rest. And this is what he does. In chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, Paul goes deep dive into the doctrine of the covenant between God and his people. He deep dives at verse 12 to the end of the chapter, helping us understand two realities. 
Number one, you are born, these, this is the two realities. The first reality is this, you were born, I was born, all humans beside Christ were born under the headship of one man. His name is Adam. And Adam, as we sang so beautifully just a moment ago, it, Adam was, and we confessed it in the confession, if you caught it in the 1689, Adam had the law of God on his heart. Listen, when Adam was made, he delighted in following God. He rejoiced in it. It was like the air that he breathed. It was natural to him. There was one stipulation external to his internal witness. And that external stipulation was do not eat the tree from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will surely die. But don't miss this. That was not, that was the only extrinsic word, the thing out here that God said. But inside of Adam's heart was written all of God's law. It's the way he was programmed. You understand what I'm saying? Obedience to God's law is not a malfunction to the human experience. It was intended to be the human experience when God created Adam. He not only had the law of God in him, but he had the power to obey the law of God. He could have lived perfectly, but he chose rebellion because he wanted to be God. He did not want to live in covenant with God. He wanted to be his own God. And so he went his own way. And what happened is this, when he chose, we chose in him. And we all rebelled against God. Therefore, the law is no longer perfectly written in our heart as the instruction that we follow instinctively, but rather the twisted, deformed, fallen, broken image of, of God is there. And the law is distorted. And in our minds, it's twisted to think that all the law is is a killjoy. All the law is is a thing that keeps me from what I really could enjoy and live life to the fullest. We've got it backwards, instinctively, naturally, because our headship is under Adam when we're born. We inherit sin, death, judgment, condemnation, disobedience. Every one of us inherit that. And then he shifts, he pivots and says that the headship of Christ is not like the headship of the first man. Oh, it's completely different. Because see, Christ was born in the flesh according to human, according to human flesh, yet without sin. He was born without sin. He was born with the law in him. He was the embodiment of God's revelation. So much so that he tells his followers, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Oh, John writes in his opening chapters, he says to us, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what happened? God sent his son in the form of humanity, but without that corruption of sin. What did Jesus do? He didn't fail. He never failed. He did what Adam could not do, refused to do. He did it perfectly. And what did he secure for all those who believe in him and come under his headship, his representation in the covenant of grace? 
He brings the free gift of God, the grace of God, justification, eternal life, obedience, righteousness. And so Paul in Romans 5 lays it out as clear as day. You either live right now, this moment, under Adam, because that's the way you were born. Or, and with that, you get all of those things which Adam got. Sin, death, condemnation, judgment. That's your life. Or, you have been born from above under the new headship of the one and final second Adam who has set you free and gives you the free gift of life, grace of God, life eternal, righteousness which you do not deserve. He has blessed you with every good and perfect gift from above. You are either under Adam or you are under Christ today. That's what Paul wants us to know. Why is he so insistent we get it? Because he moves to Romans 6 and he begins to detail what it means to receive the covenant blessings through Christ. What covenant blessings, Paul? Well, we died with Christ. That doesn't sound like a blessing. Oh, it's a blessing because when we died with Christ, we're buried with Christ. When we were buried with Christ, we are raised with him to newness of life. And so we're restored in Christ to the ability to do what God calls us to do. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ living in and through us, we can obey God's law again. And we can do it with delight and with joy and with fullness of life. You want to live the good life? Listen, if you're in this room and you are in Christ, let me tell you something. You have the ability to have the greatest of all the things of God today in Jesus Christ. The Christian life is not mere. It's not meager. The Christian life is not duty-bound somberness. The Christian life is the fullest expression of what it means to be a human. We live in Christ and we breathe in Christ and we have the movement of Christ in our very being and we have the ability now to follow him in obedience and experience the blessings of the covenant which he has secured for us. Christian is not a, Christianity is not a religion of, well, just hang on and it'll get good later. It's good now. It's good now. Stop looking at the world thinking they got it all and one day we'll get it. We've got it all. And they're sadly, sadly living a life shackled to sin, taking them to the pit of hell for eternity. And our hearts should break for them. We're not missing out. We've got it all. We have the good life. The way God intended is right within our grasp and the power to grasp it has been given to us by the Spirit. We are no longer slaves to impurity, lawlessness, sin, which equals death. We are not slaves to that any longer. Christian, you are not headed down the treacherous path of destruction. But God, by His grace and mercy, has transferred you from the kingdom of destruction to the kingdom of life. From the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. From the headship of Adam to the headship of Christ. From an inheritance of death to an inheritance of abundant living. We are now slaves of righteousness, which leads to our sanctification, Paul says in chapter 6. And that leads to eternal life 
in Jesus Christ. So at the end of Romans 6, Paul has answered these great questions and brought us to the mountaintop of the fact that by presenting our members to God for his glory and for his ways, we are free. You're free. And then Romans 7 happens. (laughs) Romans 7 is the depiction of the Apostle Paul telling us what it means to experience real Christian living in the fallen world. It's the real experience of real Christian in a real world. You see, if we just stopped at Romans 6 and we said, well then, what's wrong with me then? You know, I've been set free. I died, I was buried, I was raised from the dead. Christ lives in me. I'm free from the law, I mean, from the slavery of sin and death. And I'm alive to God and I'm now a slave of righteousness. But that's not your Monday morning, is it? That's not, is it? Every day you just wake up and you go, oh, I'm so glad I don't desire bad things anymore. Life's so easy. It's so good. I'm telling you, if I get any more perfecter, (laughs) I won't be able to stand myself. Maybe that's your experience, but that's not the Apostle Paul's experience. See what the Apostle Paul wants us to see in Romans 7 is all these great covenantal truths, covenantal blessings have been secured for us in Christ, given to us through the Spirit, and we now live as the first fruits of that resurrection in a sin-riddled body. Romans 7 brings us the covenantal experience of living in a fallen world. The law is good and righteous, but powerless. Powerless to deliver believers from sin and death. Romans 7 is a great shout of become who you really are. It's the deep reality that we have not arrived yet, Christian. And I said last week, This experience doesn't get better through time as a Christian. Oh, you don't move from like beginner Christian, you know, where you're kind of getting things all messed up and you're obviously sinning some and you, but you figure it out as you go and then you become an expert Christian. And like, if you live by God's grace to be like a hundred years old, I mean, you won't sin anymore. Sin will be a fragment of your memory. The reality is, what Paul says the reality is, is that the more you live with Christ, the more you realize your need for Christ. The more you recognize that without him, you are nothing. Without him, you are despicable. Without him, you are irredeemable. Without him, there's nothing good in your flesh. Without him, my besetting sin would be who I really am. And so he comes to Romans, 14, or Romans 7, 14 through 25. Let me just read a paraphrase. Because <clears throat> I know it can get confusing, but let me just read it to you. In, in my words, taken, I think, from the text. But just listen to what he says. Beginning in verse 14, Paul says, I'm in the flesh. My flesh is sold under sin. I cannot understand myself. The good and godly things I do, I so want to do, I don't do the things I absolutely hate 
Those are the things I find myself doing. This reality is true of me. Sin lives inside of me. There is nothing good and redeemable in me, in my flesh, that is. I feel powerless to do good. I feel powerless to defeat sin in my flesh. This powerlessness is a law of sin indwelling in my members. And it's at war against the law of God that is written in my heart. The, the battlefield of the war between the law of sin in my flesh and the law of God in my heart are the members of my body that are supposed to be presented to God for righteousness. I'm a walking contradiction. I want to love and obey God with everything that I am. I want to serve God with every breath. Yet this power of indwelling sin compels me toward the very sin I so much hate. My life feels like a constant back and forth between victory over sin and then falling back into sin like a prisoner of war. Oh, miserable man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We're in Romans chapter 5, <clears throat> verse 21 through 25 today. And what I've just, I think what I've tried to capture in a very clear set forward sentence, set of sentences is the meaning of Romans 7. 14 through 25. That's Paul's description of the daily life of a Christian. This is not a pre-Christian reality, nor is it a carnal Christian reality, nor is it the experience of young believers. Paul has been a believer for 20 years when he writes Romans. And in the present tense, he says, this is my struggle every day. No, it's not pre-Christian. It's not carnal Christian. It's not young Christian. This, what Paul is describing, is the experience of mature believers day in and day out. This is the experience of Christians who are... in touch with their need of Christ more and more and more in need of his spirit more and more and more in touch with the fact that they need the sanctifying work of God in their life today more than they ever needed it in any time before now this is not all that can be said about the Christian life Romans chapter 7 but it is an important snapshot into the Christian life. No, we could talk about, very much so, we could talk about the joy that comes in the Christian life. We could talk about the abundance of life that we all live in. We could talk about the victory over sin by the grace of God. We could talk about the rewards of walking faithfully according to the truth 
as Christians. But if that's all we ever talk about, we fall prey to a deathly triumphalism that is not consistent with the real life we live every day. The biggest danger for some of us is to fall into the trap of thinking there's coming a day in this mortal life when sin will be gone and we will live completely perfect in his sight. And the reason that's a problem is because you will fall prey to it and then you will stop warring against sin and sin will begin to take ground that it doesn't belong to that sin. It belongs to Jesus. I, I can't resist war analogy because Paul's talking about war today and we're going to get to that. But let me just say it this way. It's not any different than the fact of answering the question, when did the allied forces win the war against the Axis powers in World War II? When did they win the war? And historians can debate that all day long. Because here's the reality. When did they win the war? When Germany was foolish enough to sink a cruise liner with American citizens on it. That's when they lost the war. Because until then, our president, our Congress, they were just going to stay out of it. They weren't going to be engaged. But when they got struck, they went to war. When did they win it? Well. It was on that fateful day, June the 6th, 1944, whenever the Allied forces went across the English Channel and made a beachhead into the beaches of France. And they went to war from that day forward to finish what they had already accomplished. By landing safely on that beach, they won the war. Or you could say it was when Patton and his army surrounded at the Battle of the Bulge found the power and strength to overcome the enemy and not get encircled completely and cut off and destroyed. You could say it was when Germany made the fateful error of going to war on two fronts. You could say a lot of points in the war brought the end of the German Third Reich. But one thing you know is that government was dead on arrival. And it's the same way with us, Christian. When will you win your war over sin? Well, there's marks and demarcations all along the way that the ultimate battle has already been won and that it's being played out day by day. And what I wanna warn you about is if you sit comfortably in this pew and that's not the story of your life, then you probably are not a Christian. If you're living your life at ease, if you're living your life as if, oh, well, you know, I got it figured out. Jesus won the war and everything's easy. And I just kind of go on with my day. And I just, uh, somehow I just always end up blessed and all things good and everything's working out. And there ain't no struggle. You probably are lost as a duck in high weeds. You probably are headed to hell. If you're not at war with sin in you, you don't belong to Jesus. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 7. The presence of a real war going on in you is the mark that the Spirit of God through the new man is fighting to win the war over sin in your life. And if your life is simple and easy, you of all people ought to be most concerned. 
Some of you have coasted on autopilot for years. And what you actually are is a really bad Pharisee, self-righteous, lost person, whitewashed tomb. Your mere obedience is not a symbol or a sign of God's blessing. It's a curse unto death. And what you better do is throw off that shallow view of sin and look deeper inside of your heart to know and inside of your members to know that a real power is at work in you against God Almighty. And unless you put it to death, it will kill you. So I find a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that, that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. The first thing we see in this passage is that we Christians delight in God's law within our hearts and in our minds, but the law of sin wages war against us in our body, in the body of flesh. The, the, the body is the seat, the flesh is the seat of sinful desire. And though it's ultimately defeated, it's still waging war right now. It's still fighting to regain ground that is lost forever. It's still punching you each and every day with the right hook of your indwelling sin. And if you drop your guard, you'll find yourself sprawled on the canvas, scrambling to get back up. Right? That's why I said, if you're not fighting, that's a sure sign you're not his. Because if you're walking through life with your guard down, you never get off the canvas. You get pummeled to death. And that's not who Jesus made you to be. And that's not who you will be. But listen, if you find yourself occasionally sprawled on the mat, join the ranks of those who know Christ as their true Redeemer and Savior, their covenant head. And by the power of His Spirit, scramble to your feet and lift your guard and keep fighting. Keep fighting. The reality is, is that there's a law in our heart. That was the promise of the new covenant to God's old covenant people. I will make me a people and in those people I will write my law, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of their heart. And they will be my people and I'll be their God. And they'll have no need of anyone to tell them I'm their God because inwardly they will know that I'm their God. And they will long to serve me in my land. That's the, that's the inward life of the Christian. The mind is so important in this fight. The mind in the scriptures, in the New Testament, particularly in Romans, is a picture, a window into the reality. Not just of the mind, the brain, but the mind, the inner man. It's a way that Paul talks about the inner man. And the inner man must be renewed day by day by day. How? By the Spirit. Through the Word. That's why we open the service with Psalm 19. 
Because David, even though he's before Christ, filled, filled with the Spirit, he's saying, I delight in the law of God. His precepts are good. I so want to do it. I believe this is the best way to live life. And that's the, that's the inner life of the Christian. That's who we really are. In Christ, we really do love God and love his ways above all the ways of the earth. I find it to be a law, though, that when I want to do right and follow my mind, which is redeemed by the Holy Spirit and bathed in the word of God, and I want to do right, but I find that when I want to do that, evil lies close at hand. The more I press into who God is for me in Christ, the more sin dwelling in my members will fight to keep me from knowing Christ. The more I fight, the more pressure it will apply. In other words, if you'll just go limp after Christianity and just walk like a, like a zombie through the rest of your life, there's no real struggle to that. And that's not real living. And that's why I question whether you're really a believer. But empowered by the Spirit and the new man alive in you wakes up every day saying, let's go do what God has for us to do. And then you're tired. And then your mind is still caught up on that thing that you saw last night in that TV show. And it's just eating your mind alive. And you, and, and you say, okay, well, I need to read my Bible. And ding, an email comes in. It's like, well, I got to get to the, I know I need to read, but that email's really important. I'm going to get to that email, but I'm going to get back to the Bible. Ring the phone. Oh no, it's my secretary. I, I, I had that meeting. I forgot about it. I'll be there in five minutes. Hang up. Rush to work. Fly into the office. Still trying to maintain your goodness. Busy morning. Lots, lots to do. I'm sorry. I'm a little late, you know. And you sit down and this, this day then rolls downhill to a wayward glance or a root of anger springing up. And then by the time you get to the end of the day, you're laying in your bed again, staring in the dark at the ceiling. And you're saying, what a miserable person I am. I'm miserable. Oh God, I so much this morning when I woke up wanted to be with you all day. And all I've done today is be consumed with everything else around me. How long will it be this way, Lord? How long, oh Lord? How long will you leave me in this body of death? Christians must come to grips with the fact that we in our hearts and minds and our redeemed man want what God wants, but our flesh so much wants to keep us from it. Secondly, we as Christians must cry out to God for ultimate deliverance from this war through Christ. Look what he says in verse 24. Wretched, I've already said it several times. That word can also, and I think would be helpful to us to understand it means miserable. Wretched, miserable man that I am. Notice he doesn't say, miserable man I used to be. Miserable man 
that I was a few months ago, but I've been now I'm past that. No, he's saying as the great apostle, the miserable man that I am right now, who will deliver me from this? Who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, the body is sold under sin. It is, it is a true fact that you are a new man and inside of you is this inwardly new, renewed, living being, spiritual being, which delights in the law of God, delights in the ways of God, delights in the person of Christ, delights to do his will. And yet you're, that man is still living a real life inside of a real fleshly body, which is not yet fully redeemed. If it were fully redeemed, you would not sin anymore. You would have no need for sanctification. We call that glorification. Justification secured by the blood of Christ is ours. Glorification is the end of justification at the resurrection when we stand in his presence fully clothed in a new, immortal, incorruptible flesh. But between our justification and our glorification is the reality of this mortal life lived in a mortal body that is riddled with the effects of long patterns of sin. And that inner man must go to war every day. How do we go to war? How do we go to war? I'm so glad you asked. We cry out to God. Well, there's got to be more than that. I don't know. Look at verse 24. Did I miss it? Paul does not say here a list of things for you to do. Jobs for you to undertake. Improvements for you to make. At the end of chapter 7, he ends with a cry. Of deliverance how do I win this war I get myself every day in the presence of Jesus by crying out how long until you fully deliver me oh God please deliver me and look we know this is the case Christians listen we know it's the case why because when you sit with a dying Christian you have the, the, the privilege of watching that process take place. And they begin to say, I'm so tired of this life. I want to go be with Jesus. I want to go be with Jesus. I, I don't want to live here anymore. I'm done with this. Why won't God take me? Those are the questions they ask you as a pastor, as you hold their hand, as a family member, as you hold their hand. They look in your eyes, tears streaming down the face and say, why won't God let me go from this body? But my question is, why am I waiting till I'm on my deathbed to cry that way? Why not cry today that way? Wouldn't that make a difference in how I live my life? If I woke up tomorrow morning crying out just like that dead person or dying person, cries out on their bed. What if I woke up tomorrow morning saying, oh God, I had to wake up another day in this life. Please God, would you take me to be with you? I want to be with you, but Lord, if you leave me here, then make me good for your use. 
today. Oh, God, help me to obey you. I want to obey you. I have a desire to obey you. But as soon as I put my feet on the ground, some ache's going to hit me. Some thought of some job I got to do today is going to hit me. Some conflict in my life is going to arise. You know me, God. Help me. I'm but dust. Please deliver me. If I cried out that way, I'd be winning the war against my sin. I would be being more and more conformed into the image of Christ. Our Lord groaned against sin in this life. He groaned against it, not because he was sinful, but because he saw so many people around him trapped in their sin. And he groaned for deliverance. When he stood in front of Lazarus' tomb, he wept because he had to bring his friend back. He didn't weep because he was scared he couldn't help him. He weeped because he knew by bringing him back he would live in this state longer. He wept because ultimately it was good that he brought him by the power of God back to life for all of us and for the disciples. But it was not so good for Lazarus in the moment. Can you imagine Lazarus? This week I thought about it. It was this cry. I mean, here Lazarus has been crying out, oh God, I know, I know he did. Oh God, I mean, Jesus preached the best sermons. And when he got to the end, don't you know Lazarus and everybody sitting there was like, just take us now. And then he dies. This, this guy dies. And then he's standing outside the grave, breathing again. And you know he had to be thinking, serious? Are you serious? He wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, this is magnificent. I get to go hang out with my sisters again. Oh, glorious day. I get to see the Pharisees again. This is going to be wonderful. No. No, he's in there thinking, I know this must be good, but it sure don't feel that way. I want to go home. Can't I just go home? If you're not saying that very often, you're not defeating your sin very much. And if you're not ever saying that, your home might be here and not there. We as Christians have to daily cry out to God to deliver us fully. Oh God, I know you've delivered me, but deliver me. Oh God, I know that you justify me and you're sanctifying me, but can we get it done so I can be with you? It's like a parent who's been gone on a trip and the kids are waiting at the door. That's the best moment as a parent, isn't it? I mean, trips are awesome. I really wish me and Amy would go on a trip right now. I love to go on trips with her. It's the best. But it's also pretty good when you pull up in the driveway and they've made signs and they're running out and they're so excited to see you. That's the experience of a Christian, right? On that last day, when he comes and splits the sky, the Christians that are here will be caught up with him because they've got the signs ready and they've been watching and here he comes. Deliverance at last. Set free at last. At home at last. We have to cry this way to defeat our sin. We have to cry to him, deliver me. And finally, as we're crying for deliverance, we as Christians must always remember that as long as we live in this mortal life, 
We serve the law of God with our redeemed man and yet the law of sin with our flesh. If he ended in 25a, I might could be convinced this whole passage is about pre-Christian living. If he just stopped with the cry, I would say, well, that sounds like a conversion experience. The Pharisee Paul, trying to obey the law, couldn't get it done. He saw he couldn't get it done. And at the end, he cries out, oh, wretched, miserable person that I am, who will deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I might be convinced. I don't know that I would be. Because here's the thing. That wasn't Paul's conversion experience. Paul wasn't crying out to be delivered. Paul was happy to kill Christians. He thought he was doing the work of God until miraculously Jesus was in front of him saying, how long are we going to play this game? How long are you going to fight me? Right? So it wouldn't match Paul's life if that was his conversion. Because that's not how he was converted. But if it stopped there, we might could reason that it was pre-Christian and that Paul's showing the pattern of the majority of Christians that they start to try, their conscience is awakened by the Spirit. They start to think, I can do good. Well, I can't do good. Boy, I'm trying to do good. I've, I'm, I'm, written, I'm still failing. God, help me. Oh, God, help me. We might could say that, but that's not where he is. Look at 25b. He reminds us in summary of the whole thing he's already said after the cry for deliverance. He summarizes the whole thing by saying, so then, I serve the law of God with my mind. That inner man, the law written on his heart is serving God. But in my flesh, I find myself sinning, serving sin. That's the reality. That's the daily reality. In other words, what we find in, in, in this passage, 21 through 25, is a very clear, use a big word, eschatological, eschatological reality. What does that mean? A view of reality with the end in mind. With the end in mind. We are delivered, but we're not yet delivered fully. We are transformed, but we are being transformed. We are alive in Christ and dead to sin, but we're still killing our sin. Already we belong to God, but not yet fully in the presence of God. It's eschatological. He's thinking about the whole of his life. And he's saying, man, the deliverance is coming from Jesus. But until that day, my mind and my inner man, redeemed by God, born from above, Law written on its heart is wanting to serve God with all that I am. And my fleshly sinful being is still with me wanting to sin every day. That's my reality. That's your reality, isn't it? That's our reality. And I've already said it, but I want to say it again. If that's not your reality, you need to talk to a pastor today. If you've just found life to be simple at this point because you said a prayer years ago and since then, you know, things just kind of been easy. Somebody sold you a bill of goods. They peddled to you a false gospel. You prayed an incantation that has no power. You did no more than the Roman Catholics do when they go and pay their penance and go to confession with a priest thinking that they worked their way to God. You 
when you cried out to God if you were truly saved, entered an actual war. And that war rages in you back and forth. And you're crying out for deliverance. And yet realizing until that day, I will not be fully free of this body. It's still got to die. You know, yesterday I was at a funeral for Miss Acker and Aaron preached it so wonderfully. So wonderfully honored God and honored his mom. But Aaron, last night as I was going to bed, I thought about your mom with this text. And you've got loved ones who are dying. And I want you to think about them with this text in mind. They have been on a journey for however long they belong to God. In reality, they've been on a journey. And that journey has been filled with dangerous detours, rocks that seemed impossible to get around, narrow pathways where the steep is right there and I could step off and die, warning signs that if you keep going that direction, the bridge is out and you will die. They've lived this whole life walking along, stumbling along, struggling along, gaining victories and then falling back and gaining victories and then falling back. And then on Wednesday, she cried out to God, take me home. That, that had been her desire for a long time. Take me home. And God said, it's time, Miriam. Come home. And when she crossed over that river of life and death, when she crossed over into the paradise of God, into the presence of Jesus, for the first time in her life, she rested. She, she, she was being like looking back. It's right there and now it's gone. When you face death, Christian, you better have this passage in mind. Because then death will be a deliverer into the mighty presence of our almighty God. And you will reign with him. And you will sit, sit in his presence resting. Resting because he has won the war. And he has finally set you free from the body of death. And just because I don't want our eschatology to get messed up. In his presence while you're resting, you will cry out. How long till you give me a new body? <laughs> How long till you give me a new body, Lord? I want that. Can we have that? God's made us hungry for him. And he, the only way we fully know him and fully experience him fully and without any restraint is to be in a fully redeemed, glorified body with the new man and the new body in his presence forever. Isn't that the day you long for, Christian? Isn't that the day you're crying out from your inner man to have? Then fight the war with that cry. Fight it day in and day out. Don't concede one moment of your day tomorrow to the enemy and to the law of sin, but fight it to tooth and nail till you lay back down in the bed and you stare at the ceiling and you say, oh God, please let me come home. Please let me come home. That's, that's the prayer of a Christian. That's the life of this Christian life in covenant with our Redeemer who is the head of the church. We are victorious and yet being made victorious day after day after day. Let's pray.